Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark and there's no Bethan this week. If you follow us on social media, then you will know why. If you don't follow us on social media, then shame on you. Uh, So Bethan has had a baby. She's given birth to her second daughter, a girl called Evie. If you want to see some cute photos, then head over to Instagram or Facebook. Um, They're both doing really, really well. Uh, We were hoping to get to the end of season five, so we've only got two episodes to go. Um, But yeah, Evie arrived a couple of weeks early, so it's, uh, it's thrown things out of whack a little bit. So it's just me for the next two episodes. I'll then take a break and I'll be back on the 16th of June uh, for a very interesting case. We're heading to America for that one, as we are for today's episode. Um, And I've got some exciting stuff lined up for the beginning of season six. So I'm going to get some guest presenters along, some familiar voices and names. Um, some not so, uh, but that's something to look forward to. And then Bethan will be back before you know it. So let's dive straight in. If you've ever visited San Francisco, then chances are you'll have heard of, or perhaps even visited, one of the world's most notorious former prisons. Alcatraz, otherwise known as The Rock, is an island that sits roughly a mile and a quarter off the coast of San Francisco Bay in California in the USA. Despite the island's rocky and mostly uninhabitable terrain, it has served American civilization since around 1850, when it was developed with facilities for a lighthouse and a military and naval defensive fortification. The island is only about 22 acres in size, so it's not massive. The Civil War era saw rapid changes in artillery and fortification strategies and, as a result, Alcatraz Island's defences were rendered obsolete. However, the island was later put back into use. Government officials noticed that the water currents surrounding the island were dangerously rough at all times of day and all year round. In theory, if one were to become stranded on the island without a sturdy boat to get off it, it would be nearly impossible to reach the mainland. Recognising this situation as a rare opportunity, plans were drawn up to convert Alcatraz Island into a unique escape-proof prison. Official ownership deeds to the island were acquired by the United States Department of Justice in October 1933, and the island officially became a federal maximum security prison. Alcatraz was designed to hold the very worst of society's prisoners, difficult individuals who continuously caused trouble within California society and who were unmanageable at other federal prisons. The plan was simple yet brilliant. Ship the dregs of society off to a small island from which they couldn't escape. To attempt the one and a quarter mile swim to the mainland in the freezing, choppy waters would be akin to suicide. Even if an inmate was crazy enough to try it, he would certainly drown. As far as the law was concerned back then in the 1930s, that would be no big deal. Needless to say, the plan was warmly welcomed by the Californian government. And so, at 9.40am on the 11th of August in 1934, the first shipment of 137 prisoners arrived, bound and shackled aboard rickety boats. They were offloaded onto the rocky shores, and so Alcatraz, as we know of it today, was born. 
In the following months and years, a steady stream of America's worst criminals would make their way to the rock to serve their lengthy sentences. One infamous prisoner of Alcatraz was the notorious mobster Al Capone. Life at Alcatraz was violent and brutal, so much so that despite originally being built to hold 600 inmates, the guards could rarely handle more than around 250. Nevertheless, the guards ran a tight ship. Inmates endured almost around-the-clock lockdowns. The island was covered with barbed wire fencing and the perimeters were always manned by expert marksman officers who had orders to shoot to kill should anyone try to escape. Then there was the bay itself. The prisoners were constantly reminded that the rough waters of the bay were too cold to sustain human life for more than a few minutes, not to mention the fact that they were infested with enormous great white sharks. It was accepted by many that an attempt to make the treacherous swim to the mainland would be a guarantee of death. Alcatraz was the Titanic of the American penal system. Just as the Titanic was unsinkable, Alcatraz was escape-proof. However, if history has taught us anything at all, it is that this is rarely the case. Alcatraz served as a prison for just 29 years, but during that time, a total of 36 inmates made daring escape attempts. 23 of them were recaptured before they even made it off the island. Six were shot and killed as they made a break for the rocks. Two drowned not long after entering the water, their dead bodies soon washing back up on the island's rocky shore and another two also made it to the water but soon gave up and turned back before surrendering to the guards. And then of course there are the remaining three, the ones who are officially listed as missing and presumed drowned. However, not everybody believes that that is the case. There are scores of people who believe that the men were the only humans in history to successfully escape from America's escape-proof fortress. And as we'll go on to find later, there is enough evidence to suggest that they may just be correct. So this story is one of three men who sought freedom at all costs. A tale of remarkable ingenuity, patience and luck. Out of sheer willpower and pure necessity, a small group of convicted criminals constructed and may well have executed one of the most infamous prison escapes of all time. Frank Lee Morris was born in Washington DC in 1926. After being suddenly abandoned by his parents at the age of 11, he spent most of his childhood years in a string of foster homes. He began his criminal career at the age of 13, and by his late teens he had several convictions for a range of offences, including possession of drugs and armed robbery. Morris spent most of his early years incarcerated. As he got older, he went on to pick up further convictions for car theft and more armed robberies. After escaping from a prison in Louisiana while serving a tent stretch for robbing a bank, he was recaptured a year later and sent to Alcatraz on January the 20th in 1960 as inmate number AZ1441. Interestingly, the Associate Warden's record card at Alcatraz Prison shows that Morris ranked in the top 2% of the general population in terms of intelligence, with an IQ of 133. In the cell next door to Morris was John and Clarence Anglin, 
two brothers from Georgia who were born to their farmer parents in a family of 13 children. The brothers later moved to Florida and worked as farmers and labourers, but they also soon began robbing banks and other establishments in the early 1950s. They usually targeted buildings that were closed to avoid violence and to ensure that nobody got hurt. They were both arrested in 1958 after robbing the Alabama branch of the Bank of Columbia with a toy gun. Both men received 15 to 20 year sentences, which they served at Florida State Prison. After repeated failed attempts to escape, however, the brothers were transferred to Alcatraz. Also residing next door to the three men was 28-year-old Alan Clayton West, a repeat offender from New York City. He was imprisoned for car theft in 1955 in Atlanta and transferred to Alcatraz in 1957 after an unsuccessful escape attempt. Unlike Morris, West was intellectually challenged with the mental age of a 12-year-old. His record shows that he was arrested more than 20 times throughout his life and that he was far from a model prisoner. He supposedly spent much of his time in solitary confinement due to violent, racist and disruptive behaviour. Unsurprisingly, it was Frank Morris who initially began formulating the master escape plan. He was the thinking man, intelligent, adept and educated, a rarity amongst his fellow inmates. Within a short time of arriving at the rock, Morris soon figured out that much of what the prisoners thought they knew about Alcatraz was in fact little more than a myth. For example, Morris knew that the water temperature in the bay was indeed dangerously cold, but by no means unmanageable. With a little bit of cold water conditioning, one could easily train oneself to withstand such temperatures for enough time to maybe reach the mainland. Morris also knew that the rumours of great white sharks lurking around the rock were simply false, probably just a scare tactic invented by the guards to deter any notions of an escape attempt. Morris began explaining his theories to the Anglin brothers and to Alan West, and in no time at all, all of the men were convinced that they had a good shot of escaping the island and winning back their freedom. Under the leadership and direction of Morris, a meticulous and long-term escape plan was pieced together. Each of the men's cells had a ventilation duct located beneath the sink. The metal grill covers could be removed with some brute force, but the hole itself measured about the same size as the average textbook, much too small for any of them to squeeze into. So, for the next six months, the men gathered up makeshift tools. Metal spoons, metal shards and old saw blades that they'd found lying around the prison grounds. The men patiently worked every single night without exception, slowly and silently chipping away at the area surrounding the shaft, hoping to widen each of the holes just enough so that they would be able to pass through the thick concrete wall and into the narrow cavity beyond it. Doing such heavy-duty work without making any noise or attracting the attention of prison guards was a major achievement in itself, and many have wondered how the men were able to achieve this. Former prisoners of Alcatraz remembered that some inmates were permitted to play various musical instruments in their cells in the hours leading up to lights out, so it is possible that the escape team may have used the sound of the music to drown out their chiselling. 
The former prisoners also later recalled that around the same period as the escape took place, there was major renovation work being carried out in the neighbouring A block, which was also a source of constant loud noise. Progress was painfully slow, and it's believed that this phase of the plan must have taken at least six months. However, eventually their hard work and patience paid off. Once the holes were made wide enough to pass through, the escapees were able to shuffle their way into the wall cavity, and from there the inmates found a way into a scarcely used utility corridor that was left mostly unguarded. This was a major leap forward for the men and for their hopes of freedom, but they still had a lot of work to do. Now more and more determined, they immediately moved on to the next phase of their grand plan. Months before the men had broken through their cell walls, Adam Clayton West had been given a prison job doing general cleaning and maintenance work throughout the prison. Thanks to this, he'd seen parts of the prison that were inaccessible to anybody else. Despite his limited intellect, his knowledge of the prison layout made West an invaluable asset to the plan's ultimate success. West was able to confirm to the group that the upper level of their cell block was completely unused and vacant. What was even more exciting, however, was West's revelation that he had also seen another ventilation shaft, this time on the ceiling, that appeared to lead all the way up to the prison roof. Hoping to exploit this minor structural vulnerability, the men made their way up to the upper level one night to see it for themselves. Standing beneath it, they could clearly see the sky and they could feel fresh air coming from the hole. They all agreed that the ventilation shaft was indeed their way out of B block. But getting out of B block was only half the battle. Their biggest and by far most perilous challenge would be how to escape from the island itself. Morris pondered long and hard about how he and his fellow escapees would make the crossing up to the mainland. Up until now, anyone who had attempted to make the swim had either drowned or given up and swam back to the rock. Morris knew that if he and his comrades stood any chance of getting away, then swimming was out of the question. They needed to think outside of the box. So over the following months, the four men crawled through their tunnels on an almost nightly basis before rendezvousing at the vacant upper level of B Block where they set up a clandestine makeshift workshop unbeknownst to the prison staff. It was here that they commenced the next phase of their master escape plan, the construction of the life raft that would carry them to safety and freedom. Now, you may be wondering at this point how the escapees managed to work outside of their cells for months on end while the prison guards remained none the wiser. Well, Morris and his crew avoided being caught away from their beds by cleverly sculpting homemade papier-mâché-like dummy heads from a concoction of soap, toothpaste and toilet paper, even giving them a realistic appearance by fitting them with hair that they had discreetly stolen from the prison barbershop floor. With towels and spare clothes stuffed under the blankets in their beds and the dummy heads positioned carefully on the pillows, the ruse was a very convincing one. In the darkness, to any passing prison guard, the men just appeared to be sleeping. When not in use, the enlarged ventilation shaft's grill was replaced and held in place by a makeshift cement mixture which enabled the grill to be removed and replaced with relative ease. 
As always, progress was slow, but the men's patience and perseverance held strong, and they kept their focus and energy, all the while with their eyes on that end goal. Over the months that followed, the men stole more than 50 prison-issue raincoats. They weaved them together among other bits of stolen materials, and they came up with so much material that they were able to make themselves makeshift life jackets, as well as a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft. Luckily for them, the staff at Alcatraz never kept an inventory of their raincoats or any other prison supplies, and nobody noticed or even cared where the missing coats were ending up. The seams were carefully stitched by hand, which would have taken an unbelievably long time, and then further sealed together using the scorching heat from the red-hot steam pipes. Once they had successfully constructed the raft and were confident of its durability, the men inflated it with a stolen concertina that they had cleverly re-engineered to serve as bellows. For paddles, the men salvaged pieces of scrap wood and old screws and pieced them together so that they each had a paddle. Throughout the construction of the raft, they were also working tirelessly on the ventilation shaft bound for the roof. Like the shafts in their cells, the roof shaft was too small for them to squeeze through, so the men had to chisel away at layers and layers of concrete once again, which took several months of slow and frustrating work, until one night when they jubilantly broke the last layer of concrete and were able to squeeze through the shaft and get up onto the roof. Phase 2 of the escape plan was officially complete. After countless months of dedication and hard work, the men were anxious to leave Alcatraz behind them once and for all. They were finally ready to go. It was the beginning of June in 1962 when the men retired back to their cells and anxiously sat through what they hoped would be their final hours at Alcatraz prison. On the night of June 11th, 1962, with all preparations in place, the men began their escape. Alan Clayton West heard the signal by Morris to leave the cell and he eagerly got out of bed and moved towards his escape tunnel. However, the cement employed to conceal the gap and contain the crumbling concrete around West's vent had inexplicably hardened. This not only significantly decreased the size of the hole but it also rigidly fixed the grill in place. In a panic, West struggled to break the cement and rip away the grill and resorted to sheer brute force out of desperation. Morris and both the Anglin brothers rendezvoused in the service corridor as planned. It is presumed they would have waited a short time for West to catch up, but they would have had no way of knowing why he had failed to show. Even if they did know, there was nothing they could have done to help him anyway. Realising that he wasn't going to turn up, the men moved onwards with the plan regardless and made their way up to the workshop. They grabbed all of their supplies and climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof. Guards reportedly heard a loud crash as the three escapees broke out of the shaft. However, since nothing further was heard, they decided not to investigate the source of the noise. Hauling the deflated raft, the paddles and all of their essential gear with them, the men used a kitchen vent pipe to climb over 50 feet to the ground. To get to the northeast shoreline, which is a spot where the FBI believed the men departed the island, the men would have also had to scale two 12 feet barbed wire perimeter fences. Once at the water's edge and safely out of view of the guard towers and searchlights, they inflated their raft using the concertina. 
It is estimated that the three escapees launched their boat and departed Alcatraz sometime after 10pm. They were never seen again. Adam Clayton West was not so lucky, however. By the time he managed to remove the grill and rewiden the hole enough to squeeze through, the others had already left. West frantically tried to catch them up and sprinted his way up to the workshop and then out onto the prison roof, but he was too late. It is highly likely that West missed the ride to freedom by just a matter of minutes. Desperate and in floods of tears at this point, West waited around on the roof in vain for many hours, hoping that his comrades would return for him, but they never did. Utterly soul-crushed, West returned to his cell just before sunrise the following morning and went to sleep. He went on to cooperate fully with the investigators and gave them a detailed description of the escape plan. In return, he wasn't punished for his role in it. He never did achieve his freedom. He was transferred to another prison in Washington when Alcatraz was deactivated in 63 and after serving his full sentence he was released in 67 only to be arrested again in Florida the following year on charges of grand larceny. Whilst at Florida State Prison he fatally stabbed another inmate in 1972 in what was described as a racially motivated incident. He was serving life imprisonment when he died of acute peritonitis in 1978. The escape wasn't discovered by prison staff until the early morning of June the 12th, likely because the escapees made such a good job of the dummy head ruse. Even when the escape was discovered, the senior staff of the prison didn't believe the men could have survived the waters and made it onto the shore. Nevertheless, local San Francisco law enforcement agencies conducted an extensive air, sea and land search over 10 days, believing they were looking for three dead bodies. On the second day of the search, the Coast Guard picked up one of the men's makeshift paddles, floating around 200 yards off the southern shore of Angel Island. On the same day and in the same general location, another search boat found a wallet wrapped in plastic which contained names, addresses and photos of the Anglin brothers' friends and relatives. On June the 21st, the torn and shredded remains of the life raft was found on a beach not far from the Golden Gate Bridge. The following day, a prison boat discovered a deflated makeshift life jacket made from the same material floating on the surface of the ocean, 50 yards from Alcatraz Island. No other physical evidence of the men's fate was ever found, and the FBI declared that there was overwhelming evidence at this point that the escape plan had ultimately failed and that all three men had died. This theory was further reinforced a month after the escape when a Norwegian ship reported that they had spotted a dead body floating in the ocean an estimated 17 miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. The ship didn't retrieve the body and didn't report the sighting until October of that year. However, the San Francisco coroner's office cast doubt on speculation that it could have been one of the escapees, emphasising the unlikelihood that a body would still be floating on the surface of the ocean after more than a month. They also pointed out that the Golden Gate Bridge is an immensely popular suicide spot and that finding unidentified corpses floating around in the bay was very common. In the months that followed, several unidentified corpses, more than likely suicide cases, were either pulled from the water or washed up on the shore, but none of them were ever positively identified as one of the escapees. 
Nevertheless, the FBI remained firmly stuck to their ruling that the men's escape plan could not have possibly been successful. However, their resolve didn't last long. On December the 16th in 1962, the same year of the escape, an Alcatraz inmate named Jean-Paul Scott escaped from the rock and successfully swam a distance of 2.7 nautical miles from Alcatraz to the mainland of San Francisco. The water was indeed freezing and when Scott washed up on the shore near to the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge, he was barely alive. But he was alive. He was found there by teenagers suffering from severe hypothermia and exhaustion. After recovering in hospital, he was immediately returned to Alcatraz. Despite his attempt being unsuccessful, he became the only proven case of an Alcatraz inmate reaching the shore by swimming in open water. Not only that, but he also became living proof that the FBI's assertion that the feat was impossible was totally wrong. Today, a multitude of athletes swim the same Alcatraz to Fort Point route as part of one of two annual triathlon events. This proves beyond doubt that it is indeed very possible to survive the swim that was once considered a suicide mission. More than 60 years have gone by since the escape took place, but the exact chain of events that took place after the three escapees abandoned Adam Clayton West and made a break for it remains a mystery. However, there certainly has not been any shortage of clues and widespread speculation about what became of them. Over the years, there have been scores of reported sightings of the men. Despite their initial certainty that all three men were dead, the FBI appeared to take some of these claims very seriously, to the point where agents were dispatched to perform a full investigation into some of these sightings. A day or so after the escape, a man claiming to be John Anglin called a lawyer in San Francisco to arrange a meeting with the US Marshal's office. When the lawyer refused, the caller hung up the phone. The FBI dismissed the call as a prank. However, not long after, in January 1965, the FBI investigated a rumour that Clarence Anglin was alive and well and living in Brazil. This lead was considered so credible that agents were dispatched to South America to track him down. The following year, an anonymous source called the FBI and claimed to be an old school friend of Morris. He said he had bumped into him in Maryland and described him as having a small beard and moustache. Once again, agents were dispatched to look for a man who the FBI still officially maintained was long dead. In the years that followed, several friends and family members of the Anglin brothers occasionally received many unsigned postcards and messages, including birthday cards, Christmas cards and even Mother's Day flowers, all signed by Jerry and Joe. The FBI dismissed this correspondence as nothing more than a long-running hoax, however. In 1989, when the father of the Anglin brothers passed away, it was reported that two bearded strangers showed up at the funeral home. According to several eyewitnesses, the stranger stood in front of the casket looking at the body for a few minutes and wept. They then left in a hurry and vanished. In the early 2000s, the US Marshal's office received another tip that one of the Anglin brothers was in Brazil. The US Marshals went down to Brazil and got a confirmation from a local bartender that one of the brothers was there but had since moved on. 
In 2009, the US Marshal's Office confirmed that they continued to receive credible leads on a regular basis regarding the men's current whereabouts. They also alluded to the fact that many investigators believe that the FBI were wrong in 1962 and that the Alcatraz 3 were the only men to successfully escape the rock. To this day, all three of the men have active warrants out for their arrests and they will automatically expire between the years 2026 and 2030, when the age of each of the three men will be between 99 and 100 years old, casting doubt that any of them may be alive at that time. So that is the case of the Alcatraz 3, the only three men believed to have successfully escaped from the rock and made it safely to the shore of San Francisco. What became of them, we don't know. Those sightings are speculation. There's nothing concrete, but it's a fascinating tale. And it reminds me a little bit of the episode we did on D.B. Cooper, uh, the guy who hijacked the plane, um, held the FBI for ransom, and disappeared without a trace. There were lots of sightings later, uh, of him too but he was never never found um, so do get in touch in all the usual ways let us know what you think happened to these three men thank you to all of our patreon supporters if you would like to join the club and support us via patreon uh, then you can find us at patreon.com slash seeing red podcast so i will be back next week with the season five finale Uh, As I said, I'm having a week off and then I'll be back for season six on the 16th of June. So I'll see you then. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.